Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Aaron Koch-Tesman, Senior Editor. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today for the pod. We've got our heavy-hitting crew of editors to uh, ease me back into reality after a few days wandering the deserts of California. On this week's pod, we have a new variant. What's next for biopharmas as they seek to meet this challenge? FDA and NIH leaders look to help the business case for ultra-rare disease gene therapies, and how companies are meeting the durability challenge of TIL and TCR therapies. And in our emerging company spotlight, we have a look at Quell, which just raised a very large venture round. But first, we wrapped our eighth annual China Healthcare Summit recently, but all of the content is still available online through January 15th. You can still register now and get up to speed on everything you need to know to get ready for your meetings at JP Morgan with China Biofarm executives. You'll also get two exclusive reports from our insights partner, McKinsey & Co. Visit our website, biocenturychinasummit.com to register and see the full agenda and list of presenting companies. Okay, it's been less than a week since South African scientists informed the World Health Organization that they'd identified a new COVID-19 variant. Lauren, I'm going to turn to you and ask, how are you thinking through what the next steps are for our industry as they seek to meet this challenge? Well, I think right now what we have is, is mostly questions, and there's a separate set of questions for vaccines and therapeutics. For vaccines, we've heard the mRNA companies say that they can be ready to ship a new vaccine against a new variant within, I think we've heard, 100 days. We know that this can turn around relatively quickly. But the question that I have is, what's the trigger point for that? We know that the companies are working on vaccines that can address different mutations in the virus, multiple mutations, and specifically the new variant that's emerging. But what we don't know is what needs to happen for companies to pull the trigger on clinical development and deciding to move forward with one. I think, you know, it will depend on things like severity, transmissibility, resistance to the first generation vaccines. That's all information that we don't have that could take a while to get. And with Delta, there was a big reliance on real world evidence to understand how well the vaccines were working against that variant. The data has just been rolling in, you know, in the past couple of months, the past month or so on that. The question is, how can vaccine makers get actionable information more quickly in time to act on a variant before something else comes along to replace it? Another question on a related note is, what does the model look like for developing new vaccines? At what point does this switch to more of a seasonal flu model where companies are designing vaccines in anticipation of the next season's variants? And we know we'll get a new vaccine every year. I think it also completely makes the case for therapeutics. 
We and others have talked about this for a long time. At the beginning, we said, well, in, if they'd carried on after 2003, that SARS outbreak, we'd have drugs in hand right now that we actually know would have worked against what was then the new coronavirus variant. Well, we're like nearly two years into this, are we? You would hope that if small molecule development had accelerated at the rate of vaccine development, obviously there are some monoclonal antibody therapies out there, but targeted therapies against the protease, we know that if we had these in hand, we would at least be able to treat cases. And it's also obviously clear there are a couple that the landscape is not what it was, certainly not two years ago. And, and it's also not what it was a year ago. I guess you could ask, have we learned enough fast enough? Will this be a point at which the trajectory changes again? Or are we actually learning as much as we can, as fast as we can? I don't have the answers to that. I think it is really important for our industry to grapple with this. This is just not going away and it's not going to decrease the case for new therapies or new vaccines. When it comes to diagramming the various mutations and predicting how they'll affect the binding of therapeutic MABs or MABs generated by vaccines, of course, pretty much everything I've seen so far has been focused on the 32 mutations in the spike. But of course, antivirals don't target the spike. They target things like the protease. So if there are fewer or no mutations in, in those targets, it definitely makes the case for keeping the gas down on development of antivirals. Now, also, it raises the question, though, if you're trying to predict the mutations that are going to emerge in the next variants, there might not be an issue with the protease inhibitors this time. But how well are companies prepared to address the next variants if they were to affect the sites that antivirals find. All righty. Well, there's going to be a lot more to say about this as details emerge, and it's something that we will stay on top of. Lauren will have a piece in the coming days, and we're also taking a look at what's happening with biopharma stocks. Moderna, still well off its 52-week high, nonetheless has really bounced back on this news, as have several other biotechs. Let's turn to our second topic. FDA and NIH leaders are looking to bolster the business case for ultra-rare disease gene therapies. The foundation for the National Institutes of Health Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium could just be the vehicle to do that. We spoke with Peter Marks, director of FDA's CBER, to learn more. Simone, what have we learned so far from Dr. Marks? Yeah, so our colleague Danielle Golovin spoke to Dr. Marks last week. And this is a, an interesting thing. And it's interesting that Peter Marks, as you said, as head of CBER, is throwing his weight behind this. In fact, the initiative goes back to conversations that he had with Chris Austin who was at that time director of NIH's NCATS, and PJ Brooks, who is the deputy director of NCATS Office of Rare Diseases Research. What they were talking about is what they could do to help accelerate the pace of development of gene therapies for very small populations. This is a pretty interesting idea. I would say the name is not that catchy, frankly. <laughs> I like the word bespoke, but other than that, they've given us a bit of a mouthful. Apart from that, what they really want to do is 
accelerate the conversion, the translation of things that come out of academic laboratories and get them into commercially viable programs. They're really targeting these very, very small populations, sort of under 100 patients, which is why they're sort of calling it bespoke. And what they want to do is create drug master files. So the problem is that for each gene therapy, they have to start over and over again, even if they're using very similar vectors. And what they really want is actually something that would be benefit the gene therapy world at large. Lauren's written a lot about this herself, actually. There's a lot of commonalities in the vectors. So the idea is that if you could have a drug master file on the vector, which has a lot of information about the manufacture, the purification, the toxicity, you could effectively reuse the gene therapy vector for different inserts via the drug master file, and you would simplify the process of characterization and you would simplify the regulatory path to this. He's taking a leaf from devices in this idea. And I want to also emphasize something that Dr. Marks himself emphasized, which is that the public-private partnership is a vehicle, not the destination. And what he said, and I'm going to quote him, is if all this does is spur a public-private partnership, well, it's nice. But the way we'll get to hundreds of different gene therapies for different diseases is if the commercial sector picks this up as a viable business model. And that's really important because people quite often just kind of raise their eyebrows or, you know, sort of yawn at the idea of a public-private partnership. And I think he's responding to that saying, this isn't just another public-private partnership. This is one that has an actual goal and commercial outcome at the end of it. Yeah. And I think it represents the next evolution in FDA's thinking on on gene therapy for small indications. I don't know if folks will remember, but two years ago, the agency launched what they call the N of one pathway, which was really geared toward academics. And again, these very tiny, tiny indications and helping academics get INDs for treatments that companies would just never pick up because the assumption was that there wouldn't be a business model. But you couldn't get FDA approval through that pathway necessarily. So now two years later, they're sort of tackling problems that can help industry by streamlining both development and the regulatory pathway and create efficiencies that can make the business case for rare indications than so far industry has been willing to to pick up. Yes, that's right. And it's very much focused on that academic handoff because What Peter Mark says is that the academic group might work on gene therapy and create a purification one way, and then they hand it off to a CMO or another commercial entity, as he puts it. And the purification process almost always changes. And now you've got actually a different product, and that different product is going to have a different efficacy because it's purified differently. And so What he's really looking for is is something to address that problem. And what he says is that because there's no consistency, FDA finds it very challenging to review each IND as a standalone individual package because there's no consistent framework for them either. So the drug master files, the idea is to create consistency at the academic's end, but also consistency from the regulator's end. I think it's a really interesting proposal. And Lauren, you've covered a lot of gene therapy issues in the last year. So even though this is 
geared at the ultra rare populations. What are your thoughts about how this might actually benefit gene therapies more broadly? That's what I was just thinking about is the fact that when I spoke with companies this fall, gene therapy developers working on more prevalent indications, there was a call for this type of standardization and this kind of structure that would help de-risk some of these vectors from a safety perspective. Because if you have data on a vector on the manufacturing process, you help address some of the questions on safety that have arisen, whether the animal models translate to humans and the types of risks that they carry. If you know that this vector hasn't caused tumors in an animal model, that could be valuable for any company, not just academics working on ultra-rare diseases. Excellent. Well, this, again, one to watch here. It sounds like it could really make a difference for these ultra-rare diseases. Let's turn back to SITSI once again. It's the conference that keeps on giving. SITSI, of course, being the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer. The conference wrapped just a few weeks ago, and we've still been digging into readouts Mm -hmm. out of the conference. Some of these readouts shown a bit of a harsh light on the durability of next-generation TILs and TCR therapies. Karen, you dug into this a bit. How are companies meeting this challenge? Some of the headline news around SITSI was that for TCR and TIL therapies, you saw some responses, but there was a higher proportion of responders that relapsed quickly than you would like. And specifically, some of that reaction came from looking at presentations from Iovance, which is developing tumor-infiltrating lymphocyte or TIL therapies where they extract tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes from tumors autologously and expand them, put them back in. And then also from Imatics, which is developing TCR, engineered TCR cell therapies, where you take cells, put in an engineered T-cell receptor and put those back in. So that news came out and, and the stock market sort of responded to it around November 9th. But what it created was an opportunity for us to dig into abstracts from companies developing TCR and TIL therapies, and particularly their next generation products where they're looking at enhancements to improve the performance of these cells. It created this opportunity to look at what kinds of enhancements are companies looking at. And two approaches that rose to the top, on one hand, engineering cells to express a version of the IL-15 cytokine that's attached to the membrane. And this is something we've seen in the NK cell space as well, with IL-15 being a cytokine that promotes T-cell survival and efficacy. And another one being the engineering, in addition to perhaps putting in a TCR, also putting in an engineered CD8 molecule. So CD8 is a co-receptor. We we often talk about CD8 positive T-cells versus CD4 positive T-cells. And what these molecules are are co-receptors that help, they kind of participate in the interaction between the T-cell receptor and the HLA presenting antigen on the other side. And so the idea is that this helps promote the signal through the T-cell receptor, a stronger signal through that creates a better activation. And so we saw presentations along these lines in particular, on the AL15 side, we saw presentations from Obsidian for their TILs and from TCR2 for their engineered TCR therapies. And on the CD8 side, we saw presentations from 
adapt immune and from emetics. There were some other strategies highlighted as well. For example, knocking out SOX1 and this other gene, Regnase1, that came out of KSQ therapeutics. Yeah, I recommend folks check out the story to see the kinds of data that companies were producing around these enhancements at the translational level. Excellent. Thanks for that, KTT. Before we uh, wrap for today, let's turn to our emerging company spotlight. Today, we have Quell Therapeutics, a company out of the UK. They've just raised $156 million as its Treg platform is moving toward the clinic. They had some US crossover investors jump into this round, also had SV Health Investors, JATO Capital out of Paris, Fidelity, Ridgeback, quite, quite the list of investors here. It's a Syncona company and other investors include Janus Henderson, British Patient Capital, Point72, Monashi Tecla Capital Management, our man in the UK, Stephen Hansen, spoke with Quell CEO Ian McGill about the UK biotech's platform. What he told Stephen was that the platform is aiming to combine the best parts of two primary strategies that have been pursued by CAR and Treg therapy companies. Yeah, so British patient capital, you know I was going to pick up on that. I think it's kind of interesting. It is probably... I don't know if I should say the next or another evolution in the way that the UK government is pushing forward life science and life science investment. British Patient Capital was launched by the British Business Bank in 2018. British Business Bank launched its life science investment program earlier this year to invest £200 million for those in the US, that's about $280 million, depending on the day, into UK-focused life science funds. So I guess this is one of the earlier of its investments. The idea was that British patient capital would fill a void created by Brexit when the European Investment Fund had previously provided a cornerstone investment into UK funds and couldn't do so after Brexit. So we'll continue to watch that and the UK life science ecosystem has really been one of the fastest growing, actually globally. It's very important if they're going to maintain that for them to have a continued influx of capital. So we're seeing sort of ex-government arm here step in. Well, that story is up online. So one to sink your teeth into today, if you have a little bit of time. Also reminding you to check out Danielle's story on this new gene therapy consortium. That will be out later this week on biocentury.com. And of course, we teased last week Simone's conversation with John Mariganori of Al Nylum, and that is coming soon. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. And our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music 
while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.